So Pastor Lou is out with his family, and two weeks ago, he asked me if I would like to fill in for him behind the pulpit. And uh, we have an interesting relationship. It's almost like Paul and Timothy. I got saved here. I went back to Florida. I came back here. Many of you know this story. And he basically discipled me. And uh, we have a very close relationship. And for some time, he had said he's been wanting me to do this. And he just felt like this was the correct opportunity for me to do this. As it's been on my heart for some time to go to seminary and become a pastor one day. Uh, We'll see if that works out today, huh? No, in all seriousness. (laughs) Um, I'm thankful for the opportunity, and it is something that's been placed on my heart. And I just pray that the Lord will bless all of you through this and encourage you and edify you. And, you know, that his word would not return void, as it will not. So uh, let's open up with a word of prayer, and then we'll see if I could take up an hour and 30, 25 minutes. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus, Lord God. Humbled, Lord God, by the thought of your grace and your mercy, Lord. That you, enthroned in heaven, decided, Lord Jesus, to submit yourself to the Father's will, to become part of your own creation, that you would suffer and die on our behalf, that we might have the hope of everlasting life in you, a living hope, secure in heaven, according to your resurrection and the fact that you are alive today. We thank you for this hope, Lord. We pray that the thoughts and the theology and the reality of our place in heaven with you and the reward that you have set for us in heaven that is incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away would govern our lives here, Lord God. That through trials and through suffering and through pain and through grief, we would rejoice knowing that you have done this, knowing that our eternity is secure, knowing that you work all things together for the good of those who are called according to your purposes, Lord. We trust in you. We know that you are perfect. We know that your will is perfect. And we just pray that you would speak to us now, that you would edify our hearts, Lord God, that you would build us up in our faith, Lord God. I pray that you would speak through me, that you would set me aside, and that in the power of your Holy Spirit, you would reach into each of our hearts, Lord God, to mine first and to each of my brothers here that we would be and sisters, that we would be blessed and just lifted up according to your Spirit, that we would be able to serve you in all things, Lord God. We thank you for all things, and just pray that you would bless this time, Lord. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. So, I titled this A Survey of Suffering. And at first I was thinking, you know, Pastor Lou usually preaches for a good hour to an hour and 15 minutes. So, how am I going to fill that time? Let's just study suffering, right? (laughs) It's all over the book, all over the Bible. And I thought to myself that I was going to go through the entire epistle of 1 Peter and highlight the different accounts of suffering that he, he teaches us how to suffer, whether it's through various trials or righteous suffering at work. Or, and as I began to study it, I found myself basically stuck in chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. And I, I studied the other things, so we might get to that as well, but... We're going to start right here in 1 Peter, in chapter 3, and we're going to go over this 
topic of suffering, right? Because it's a, it's a Christian paradox. As I was thinking about it in the office and praying, I thought to myself that the title of the sermon also could have been The Christian Paradox, right? Because it is a paradox, the fact that we suffer, right? In Christ we suffer, and yet we're called to rejoice. They seem like two opposite things, right? We're supposed to rejoice in suffering. The things that we're going to read about are grieving trials, right? The the fiery furnace, a refiner's fire. Like these are things that are hard and tough, and yet we're called to rejoice. And why are we called to rejoice? Because of our reward in heaven. And so we're going to read through this and we'll talk about it a little bit and see uh, if the Lord will bless us today. So uh, we'll start in verse 3 here. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So really, one of the reasons I wanted to teach about this, and it's been on my heart for some time, this topic of suffering, this idea of suffering as a Christian, because as many of you know, I had two back surgeries over the past year and a half. And for me, it was, it was a struggle. It was hard. I couldn't really hold my daughter. I couldn't pick her up. It was hard on my wife. She had to do a lot of the burden was on her. So I couldn't help around the house. And for me, it was hard. I struggled with that. From the outside looking in, my wife, who hurt her neck some time ago, was like, How were, why were you not complaining all the time? How come you weren't so upset and agitated and all these things? And although she might have felt like that, in my heart, I could look back on my suffering and I'm convicted because I wasn't necessarily rejoicing. I was patient through it and I endured it. And here I am standing today, which I wouldn't have been able to months ago because of the pain that I had going down my legs, which is all by God's grace and a picture of what he takes us through, right? This suffering he takes us through, and we'll see that here. So we'll start right here in verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So Peter starts right here in verse 3 and just bursts forth with praise. That's praise. (laughs) And when we read Scripture, and when we study Scripture, if we're just getting filled up with head knowledge and our hearts not being moved to praise God, we have to check ourselves, right? Because these things that Peter starts to think about actually cause him to say, blessed, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Bless you, Lord. He's crying out to him in praise because of the things that he has done in the life of the church, in his personal life through Jesus Christ, right? So, first thing I want us to think about is we need to be worshiping God, right? We're going to think about a couple things as we go through this little sermon on suffering. The first thing is we're brought through suffering and we could rejoice through suffering when our heart is full of praise, when our heart is full of worship, right? So Peter here says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So to think about that real quickly, I want to turn over to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Right? Most of us know this verse. It says, Be anxious for nothing, but in every, everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. This is worship, right? Whatever the situation is, whatever the trial is, it comes upon your heart and you decide not to think about it, not to see it through on your own terms or on your own strength, but on God's. So with thanksgiving, right? Setting aside whatever the trial is, whatever the suffering is, overwhelmed with thanksgiving for our salvation, for the hope that we have, for all of the blessings we have in our lives, for our family, for our homes, for our jobs, all of the things we should be thankful for right? It draws us through. It brings us through the suffering. It brings us through the trial. And what? What do we get? The peace of God, right? This is something we can't attain on our own. It only comes from God. And so when we're in the midst of the fire, when we're in the midst of the trial, we need to worship. We need to praise, right? I need to take this off because I'm sweating. Sorry, one second. Lubask, by the way, if any of you were wondering. So, anxiety is going to come, right? Worry is going to come. It's a natural part of life, right? There's sin all around this world. We're stuck in it, in this sin-cursed world. Satan's at us, trying to attack us with his, all of his angels that have been fallen. He's got his whole gambit of people trying to attack us. And yet, we're told here that we could be filled with peace, right? And that comes from a heart of worship. A heart that's thankful. A heart that loves God. And this peace will suppress all understanding, right? In the midst of whatever trial you're in, whatever the suffering is, it'll just just surpass it. You won't be able to even fathom why you're not worrying, is the idea. It's like you've been diagnosed with some type of illness, and at first your heart is sad and you're worried. And then you start to pray and you're thankful to God. And in being thankful, you're remembering all the things that He's given you and the hope that you have that's set aside for you in eternity. And this peace just comes upon you that completely surpasses all understanding. And you just, you yourself can't even fathom it. It's a gift. 
It comes from the Holy Spirit. It comes from God. So the first thing I want us to think about is praise, right? We need to be worshiping God and have a heart that's full of praise. We shouldn't be only studying the Word to fill up with head knowledge, but we should be comforted by the Word. The Word should cause us to cry out to God, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And keep it here in verse... uh, We're going to go back to Philippians in chapter 1 and verse 27. So it says... Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So this is Paul talking to the Philippian church. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. Worship isn't, isn't only our thoughts, right? Worship isn't only the stuff comes out, that comes out of our mouth. This is worship, right? Worship is our lives, the life that we live. We worship God by our actions, not only by our speech. People should be able to look at us and see a life that worships God. So Paul here is admonishing the Philippian church that you continue in all of your affairs to stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving for the gospel. Whatever persecution you're going through, endure it for the gospel. It does not matter what your boss is saying to you. Endure it for the gospel. It doesn't matter what your coworkers are saying to you. Endure it for the gospel. Right? And when you do this, you're going to be encouraged and stirred up in your spirit by the Holy Spirit that you are in no way terrified by any of your adversaries. There's no worry. You're free from it. People are going to look at you and wonder, how is it that we are being so nasty and so rude and persecuting them for their faith and saying these things to them, and yet they're responding to me in love. And yet they're responding to me with kindness. That's worshiping God. That is what worship is all about, right? It's not about the words that come out of our lips, right? If the words come out of our lips, we have empty hearts and lives void of worship and love for God, then we're in error. We need to check ourselves, right? We need to get back to the word. We need to get back to the root, which is Christ. And then that fruit of worship will flow from our lives. So he says... um, This is proof of perdition. They know they're wrong, is the idea. (laughs) When somebody is persecuting you, and you continue to endure it, and to love on them, and to worship God, and preach the gospel to them, to them, they're going to be convicted. It's like the verse in Romans that says, heaping coals of fire on them, right? Don't overcome evil with evil, but with good, is the idea. And when we do that, we're worshiping God. And so through persecution... With a worshipful heart, we can endure it and we can actually have an effect on the people who are persecuting us for the gospel. And to us, it's a proof of our salvation, which is saying that when we do this, we're going to be encouraged in our faith. We're going to be assured of our faith. We're going to be brought more confident in our faith. So the first thing is that we need to have a heart of worship. Now, uh, let me go back here. Blessed be the, we're back in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is Peter overwhelmed with this praise to God? 
the reason why we all should be overwhelmed with praise to God, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter's overwhelmed with the thought of God's mercy. He's overwhelmed with the thought that here I am, this rebellious wretch that deserves to go to hell, and yet God, with, with hood, he kept from us. He didn't pour out on us what we deserve, right? That's God's mercy. He withheld, he withheld the wrath we deserve. And because of this mercy, he has begotten us again to a living hope, right? He's caused us to be born again, right? To a living hope. So it's contradicting something, right? We were dead in trespasses. We were dead in our flesh. We were dead in our sin. Dead in this world without hope. We had no hope. There was no hope in us, right? Because our hope is alive, which means it's sure, it's sealed, it's real. We're expecting it because we know it's going to come about. It's not like the hope we once had when we were in the world where we went and bought a $5 scratch-off ticket and scratched it off and we were like, I hope I win $500. That's not the hope we're talking about. We know this hope is real. We know that it's going to come about because of God's mercy, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Right? That's what our hope is wrapped up in. That's why it's alive. That's why we could go through these trials and go through this suffering and know that I'm going to be okay. And know that I could rejoice. That's why it's a paradox, right? We're grieving through this trial and yet we're able to rejoice because we know that our home is, we're not here. We're ambassadors. We're citizens in heaven who live on earth, right? And we know that because of our hope is in heaven where Christ is, that we can rejoice. This is, this is temporary. This is fleeting. It's but a vapor. So, begotten us again to a living hope. So, being born again, right? Good time to stop and think about that, because that's what Peter's thinking about. So way back when in the Garden of Eden, right? Adam and Eve had sinned, and they totally disobeyed God's command to eat from the tree. And they were, everything died, right? They were separated from God. They were cut off from God because of their disobedience, right? They were dead, not physically, but spiritually, right? They could not no longer access God. They had no relationship with God anymore. And since then, we're all born into that same sin. We're all born separated from God, cut off from God, no hope to be with God, right? But through Jesus Christ, and his resurrection, and his death, and his sacrifice, we have this hope, right? Like uh, 2 Corinthians says, He who knew no sin, that is Jesus, became sin for us, that we might, in him, become the righteousness of God, right? We have no place with God, no hope to be with God. We're covered in this sin. The correct place for us to be, the just place for us to be, is in hell for all eternity. And yet God, by his mercy, pours out his grace upon us through the resurrection and death of Jesus Christ. Right? He forgives us and justifies us, seals us with his Holy Spirit. It's nothing that we do, nothing, not of works, right? Lest any man should boast. It is the free gift of God. 
And he gives us to this. And this is causing Peter to do what? To worship him. To cry out and praise. And say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we remind ourselves of these things through suffering and through trial, we're going to be brought through it because our hearts are overwhelmed with what Christ has done for us, right? We're not focused on our temporary situation. We're focused on what Christ has done for us and the hope that He has bought by His blood. So He has been gotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Right? Hebrews 1 Hebrews 11, 1, excuse me. Turn there if you want. It says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Right? We know our hope is real. How do we know our hope is real? Because of the faith that we have. Right? The faith is the, the evidence. The faith is the substance of the evidence of this hope that is in heaven. And that's, that's what we're talking about here. Right? When we go through these trials, the faith that we have is evidence that the hope is real. Right? Why would somebody be faithful through a bout with stage four lung cancer? Why? Right? You're completely, you have no hope according to what this world says. My father in law, when he was sick, he had stage four lung cancer. He had no hope according to what the doctor said. But by God's grace, he was healed. He didn't hope in what the doctor said. He hoped in God, knowing that if it was his will to see him through this, to heal him, he would be healed. But nonetheless, he had his hope secure in heaven, right? So, what does this being born again result in for us? It results in an inheritance that's incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away. This is what Jesus Christ bought for us with His blood. He didn't only buy us salvation, He bought us inheritance, right? We've been adopted into His kingdom as joint heirs, right? As sons and daughters. And so, we have this inheritance stored for us in heaven that's incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away. Reserved for you. Think about that. God reserved for you a place in heaven. It doesn't fade away. Don't think about your current trial. Don't think about your current suffering. Think about that, is what Peter's saying. Think about what God has bought for you through the precious blood of His Son, Jesus, and our Lord and Savior, and that is stored for you in heaven. It's incorruptible. Right? This flesh we live in is corruptible. That's what it is. This flesh we live in is fallen. It's fading. It's dying each day. But God, through Jesus Christ and His resurrection, has purchased for us in heaven something that's undying. It's everlasting. So no matter what the trial is you're going through, no matter what the suffering, no matter what the grief, we can be reassured that in heaven, we have this place for us, right? Because I didn't go out and purchase it with my good works, right? Then it would completely fall. Our, our reservation would be taken over. <laughs> but God reserved it by His blood, by the blood of His Son, Jesus. So, I also wanted to look real fast at, I, I brushed over this, but this came to mind this morning, because I'm not really looking at my notes at all. In First Thessalonians, right, it talks about how 
we should not mourn like those who have no hope, right? That was, that's how we mourned before we had Christ. Now we know our hope is alive and that all who have faith in Christ have this hope and they have this reservation for them set in heaven and that it's incorruptible and it's undefiled. And it does not fade away, right? That's hope. (laughs) That's empowering. Verses 3 through 5 here are a theological reality. It's what exists in heaven already, set aside for us, right? And the Bible, much of the Bible is like this. As we study this, we get these heavenly realities, these theological realities about what God has done for us. But they're not supposed to just be head knowledge. We're not supposed to just know these, know these things. Verses 6 through 9 are actually the, the experience of this knowledge, right? The knowledge that God has set aside for us in heaven, this place that we could be with Him to worship Him for all eternity, free from sin, free from these trials, free from everything, free from all unrighteousness, all pain, all suffering, should actually be applied to our lives, right? By faith. Faith is the application of this theological knowledge. So, who keeps us? How... If we had to keep this reservation, it surely would fail, right? But Peter tells us that that's not the case. He says, We have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Your inheritance... And your salvation is they're both kept by God, right? Be reassured of that. Know that God has set aside these things, that He keeps them by His power, right? Turn over to uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 10. And we're going to look at verse 27 through 30. says, my my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. This is what we're talking about. This is what Peter's talking about, right? And Jesus said this. So Peter is probably remembering when Jesus said this to him and to his disciples. We're kept by God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, you don't have to turn there, says, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Right? We don't have to keep our salvation. Our salvation is kept for us by God. We should be reassured of this. Right? Because each day we fall, each day we stumble, moment by moment, right? 
We sin against God. And if it was up to us to keep it, we would lose it. Our spot in heaven would be taken away from us. But it's not. We don't have to keep it. God keeps it by His power. How reassuring is that? This is what our hope is. Our hope is not something that could be stolen from us. It can't be taken away from us. And knowing this, we should live a life according. Our lives should be lived according to this hope. According to the fact that God, by His Holy Spirit, has sealed us and given us this inheritance in heaven and that we do nothing to keep it. Right? So, we're going to go on now to verse 6. This is the experience, right? This is what should be created by the theological realities we just went over, right? We're citizens of heaven. We're ambassadors of Christ. This isn't our home. Our place is reserved for us up in heaven, right? We've been born again to this living hope. It's sealed through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's incorruptible and undefiled. It will never fade away. With those in mind, the theological realities in mind, that these things are true for us, right? We believe they're true, right? If we're born again, if we're Christians, we believe these things to be true. If we believe these things to be true, then we should actually experience the fruit of it in our lives. You understand? Both in how we live, our actions, the way we speak, the things we do, the works we do, how we treat other people, but even more so that when we're going through trials and sufferings, we can endure them with patience and godliness, actually rejoicing. So verse 6 says, in this, what we all, all the stuff we just went over, that's what in this refers to. Verses 3 through 5, in this, In the fact that our salvation, that our hope is in heaven and it's sealed because Jesus is there and He's alive and we're kept by God and it's undefiled and it's never fading away and it's actually reserved for us. In this, in that, you greatly rejoice. This should be our heart. This should be our mind. We should be greatly rejoicing in the theological realities that Peter talks about through verses 3-6. through And when we're truly rejoicing through this, we can, even though for a little while, right? It says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. So through verses 6 and 7, there's actually five things we're going to look at that. Look at, actually six. And this is... One of the reasons we could get through suffering, right? The, number one is we have a heart of worship. Number two is all that stuff we just went over, right? The promise of great reward. Number three is a purpose for our pain, right? God doesn't do anything by random. He's calculated, right? He's doing something for our benefit when we go through these things. And then we're going to see six things that we, that, that we'll go through in verses six through seven. Six different ways that we can reassure ourselves that God is in this. So, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while. A little while. Right? Somebody could suffer with cancer for 30 years, right? And, Looking at it from our human perspective, it seems like a long time, right? 
to suffer through such a thing. Whatever your suffering is. You could go through persecution your entire life as a Christian. 60 years, right? Seems like a long time. But that's not what Peter's talking about here. He's talking about this in light of eternity, right? He's talking about this like James was. Just a little, if you look a little ahead, in James chapter 4, verse, ten, uh, verse 14, where it says, For what is your life? It is, is it even a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away? This is what Peter's thinking about. Whatever suffering we go through, whatever the trial, whatever the pain, whatever the grief, it's tiny compared to the scope of eternity. Right? This should reassure us. This should cause us to be rejoicing in the midst of suffering, in the midst of grievous trials, in the midst of persecution. We should actually be able to rejoice knowing that just for a little while. Right? If our mindset is right, if our hearts are right, if we're truly worshipful and believing all the promises we just read about, then we will know that we could make it through. There's light at the end of the tunnel, right? right? The grass is greener on the other side. All these earthly sayings. But the truth is that we can actually rejoice because in the scope of eternity, this little bit of suffering is nothing. Flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 16. I think we're going to flip back to this verse once or twice. It says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. So what's he talking about? He says, Paul had given everything for the church. Right? Everything. He'd been imprisoned. He'd been beaten. He'd been left for dead. All of these things. If anybody knows about what we're talking about, it's the Apostle Paul. So Paul says, Right there in verse 15, what he's talking about. For all things are for your sakes, that the grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. So, Paul's ministry was for the church. It was for the people. It was so that grace would be poured out to many people, right? Even though he was suffering. Even though he was in prison. Even though he was chained. Even though he was beaten. Even though he was left for dead, right? He did it all so that grace would spread to many and cause the church to abound with thanksgiving to God. He says, therefore, with this thanksgiving abounding in our hearts, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, right? Every day we wake up is a day closer to our death. That's the truth. And yet, we have this rejoicing in our hearts because we know what is set and secured for us in heaven. We have a building from God. A house not made... Oh, I skipped over, sorry. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day, right? Our spirit through the Holy Spirit is being renewed, right? Each day we draw closer to God through Christ, through His Word. We're brought from glory to glory. We're made to look more like Jesus. It's a little picture of what we're actually going to experience in heaven. That's what he's talking about. We can actually have that now, right? The whole idea here is that the day you were born again and saved, you were set apart for this living hope in Christ, and that's the day that eternity had started for you. So being that's the case, live as citizens of heaven. Endure the grief. 
endure the suffering, knowing the hope that it, knowing the, the product that's going to come out of it. So he says, Yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, right? It's for a moment. This is what Peter's talking about. This is what James is talking about when he's talking about life being a vapor. It's but for a moment. It's not lasting. It's nothing in the light and in comparison to the glory that we're going to have in heaven. So, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Right? It's better, simply put. Everything that is reserved for us in heaven is better. Right? And the idea here, a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, that you also see elsewhere in Scripture, is that when we endure such things for Christ's sake, we're actually going to be able to worship Him in heaven with a greater capacity, as if we didn't. Right? The Bible talks about there being rewards given us in heaven. Right? Casting crowns at Jesus' feet. When we endure these things, when we endure these trials, this suffering the grievous fire, right? The reviner's fire. We actually, when we get to heaven one day, imagine this, are going to be able to worship Christ to a greater capacity than if we complained through the suffering, than if we murmured through the suffering, than if we looked back at God and said, why God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? Right? As if like Job was going to take the advice of his wife, curse God and die already. When we say that, We're robbing ourselves of the availability of this capacity to which we could worship God in heaven. Right? So, Christian, do you want to worship Christ a little bit in heaven? Or do you want to worship Him to the fullness that is available for you? Right? We just, Pastor Lou just went over a while ago to the parable of the sower. And it talked about uh, different Christians producing different amounts of fruit. Right? And I was thinking about that. Because as we live our life, do we know we're a 30-fold Christian? No. (laughs) We don't know. We can't look and evaluate our life and say, oh, I'm a 30-fold Christian. Even if we could, our desire should be what? To be a 100-fold Christian. We should not be content with what God is doing in our lives now. We should want more. And that's the same thought here. Whatever your struggle, whatever the situation at work, whatever the situation at home, whatever the situation with your family, you should be going through it with patience, with trust in God, with faith, with living hope. Because then when you get to heaven one day, you're going to be surprised at the amount you get to worship Christ. It's like mind-blowing. Like there's going to be different capacities by which we could worship Christ in heaven. All of us will be there behind Job and Paul. But we'll all be worshiping Christ. You understand? And like, I want to be there. Besides Job and, beside Job and Paul. I want to be there. I want to be worshiping Him to the fullness of His glory. Right? And it actually says, as, as we'll see, that when, when it talks about may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, different theologians take that different ways. Like, it, like I'm talking about now, this verse in 2 Corinthians seems to say that we're going to be able to worship Christ to a greater capacity. Here in Peter, Peter's actually saying that when we get to heaven and we endure these sufferings and these trials, 
Jesus is going to praise us. He's going to honor us. He's going to glory in what we did on earth. Is that not like breathtaking? The creator of the universe is going to say, welcome into your rest, good and faithful servant. When you endure these things with hope. We could flip back now to 1 Peter. So, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while. Right? It's a little bit. It's momentary. It's light affliction. It's nothing when compared to the eternal weight of glory being stored up for us in heaven. If need be, I glanced over that the first like 10 times I read this. Then I read it and was reading a commentary and I saw, if need be, that means God's involved. Right? That means something's going on in our life and our faith and our walk with the Lord that might be holding us back a little bit. Right? We might not be worshiping Him to the fullness that we can. We might be quenching His Spirit, grieving His Spirit, being filled up with things that we shouldn't be filled up with. So, He throws that in there. If need be. That means God's involved. That means there's a reason for your suffering. That means there's a purpose for your pain. So, um... What do I want to... It's calculated, right? It's purposeful. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 and see one of the reasons why God allows this suffering and these trials in our lives. Chapter 1, verse 3. It says... Hold on here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. There's another apostle doing what? Praising God. Worshiping God because of His mercy. And what he's going to talk about next is the same thing. Suffering. Trials. Who comforts us in all our tribulation. Right? Right? that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. Right? God allows trouble in our lives, suffering in our lives, pain in our lives, grief in our lives, so that through the power of the Holy Spirit, right, as we keep the knowledge of all of those theological realities in our head and in our hearts, He comforts us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we rejoice. And so when another brother or sister is going through that same suffering, that similar trial, that similar persecution, we could console them. And we can comfort them. And it's like, in this way, we will work alongside the Holy Spirit, right? 
The Holy Spirit comforts us and consoles us when we're going through these grievous trials and these persecutions. And so, when somebody else who's gone through the similar thing, they come beside us, and what they're saying is just encouraging us and connecting with the Holy Spirit inside of us, bringing us through these trials, right? It should comfort. That should comfort us. Knowing that brothers and sisters, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we endure the same things. And knowing this, we should comfort each other. That's one purpose for our suffering, right? That's one reason for our suffering. That we can comfort each other and console each other. Let's go back to First Peter. So, if need be, that means there's a purpose, right? So we've seen two things so far. The, the various trials are brief, right? They're brief trials and they're purposeful trials. There's a reason behind them. God is doing something in us, right? He's molding us. He's making us into something, into a greater ability to glorify Him. So then, they're brief trials, they're purposeful trials, and they're various trials, right? All kinds of trials. Illness, sickness, economical, financial, doesn't matter. Whatever it is, persecution at work, they're various trials, right? Peter's not just talking about one thing here. He's talking about the whole umbrella of Christian suffering, right? Everything. So, they're various. They're multiple. They're all kinds of trials. That's what that means there. James 1, 2, 2. Here I wanted to point out that we have another form of, another reason that we could go through suffering and trials with hope, right? Because oftentimes, usually, we're in the midst of a situation or a trial and we don't understand why, right? We know our hope is in heaven and we know that we've been born again to this living hope and we have all of this, we have faith, right? That God is doing something, but we just don't know what it is, right? James tells us, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. There it is again. The idea of rejoicing while grieving. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. There's another thing that's produced through our suffering, through our trials, right? It produces the ability to comfort one another, and it produces patience in our own hearts. That we could, but let patience have its perfect work, right? Maturity. God is trying to mature us as Christians through suffering. So rejoice. God's hand is in it. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Then he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, right? This is in the context of suffering, in the context of trials. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Right? Comes with a warning, though. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. 
For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable unstable in all his ways. Right? When we're in the midst of these trials, when we're in the midst of this situation, when we look at those theological realities and have full assurance and full faith and what God has sealed for us in heaven and has reserved for us in heaven, He will actually reveal to us the purpose for which we're suffering. Right? When we ask in faith, when we ask with humble hearts, willing to accept what God is doing in our lives, right? Because He's in it. He's involved. The the suffering Peter is talking about here isn't so much the suffering and the trials that come from sin and from the enemy. He's talking about purposeful suffering. That God actually has a purpose for suffering in the Christian's life. He actually wants to make us into something and mold us and cause us to reflect Jesus more, right? Who, who ultimately suffered the harshest? Christ, right? But He gave Him the name which is above every other name, Right? Every knee will bow before Christ. It produced His exaltation, right? It produced us. It produced our faith. So when we endure suffering, God is producing something, right? It was sin on behalf of the people, right? To attack Christ and crucify Him, right? But Isaiah tells us it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. It was God's will for Jesus to suffer and die. And it produced something, right? Jesus' suffering wasn't random. (laughs) It was calculated. God the Father initiated it, right? And Jesus Himself submitted Himself to the Father's will. And this is the mind that should be in us, right? Here, elsewhere in Peter, it says, uh, let me find it. For to this you were called, right? Suffering, trials, pain. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, right? So when you're being reviled at work, does it, is it of any benefit to revile back? No, it's not. When we're being persecuted at work, is it of any benefit to speak up? And God, Man's wrath does not produce the righteousness of God. Right? We're supposed to defeat evil with good and to endure all these things like Christ did. Right? Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in His mouth. Who, when He was reviled, did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but committed Himself to Him who judges righteously who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we having died to sins might having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripe you were healed for you were like sheep going astray but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls right god is in it is the point christ's suffering wasn't in vain neither is our suffering in vain right We should be reassured and comforted by the fact that God purposes suffering. 
He purposes trials. They're not random, is the point. Here's another point. So we got brief trials, purposeful trials, various trials, and another reason that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Christ, of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we need to be reassured that our faith is genuine. God is sovereign, right? Sometimes He asks us to do things to prove whether or not we love Him, right? Like Abraham taking Isaac up onto the altar to sacrifice him. God knew what was going to happen. He's sovereign, right? But really, he wanted Abraham to know. He wanted Abraham's faith to be made known, to be evidenced, right? For us, <laughs> that we could look back on that and see, right? The, 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 the paradox that is Paul's position on that, right? That he was justified by faith. And then James that says, it wasn't faith alone that saved him. It was his works. They're not contradictory, right? James is just saying the evidence of his faith was the fact that Abraham was willing to put Isaac on that altar, lay him down, pick up the knife, and go to slay his own son because God told him to. Right? That was the evidence of his faith. And God miraculously and divinely stopped his hand and provided a substitute to offer before God for himself. And so, you think Abraham walked away from that reassured? I'm sure he did. His faith was reassured after that. And that's what the that's what this fire is supposed to produce. It's a pro supposed to produce in us a genuine faith, right? God knows his sheep and he knows those who are goats. He knows the wheat and he knows the tares. It's more so for us, the fiery trial. And it's for God in that He's trying to refine us to remove all the impurities from our faith. You have faith, right? But it's filled with these impurities. And God wants to remove them so that you could fully worship Him and that you could fully trust in Him and hope in all of these things. You can, you can even endure suffering. That's the point. So he wants us to know that our faith is genuine, right? That the genuineness of your faith, right? Being much more precious than gold that perishes. Though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, faith. Unperishable. Imperishable. Right? Incorruptible. Right? Reserved in heaven. It's everlasting. Gold. Perishable. Yet gold, when it's ran through fire and melted down, all the impurities float to the top so that the refiner can remove all the impurities and then this perishable product comes out even more beautiful than it was before. That's our faith. Our faith is the same as that gold, except it's imperishable. How much more worth is our faith to God than gold is to man? That's the point, right? God is the refiner. Sometimes He's going to put us into a fire, right? He's the pruner. He wants us to produce more fruit. He's not just comfortable with the amount of fruit you're producing now. He actually prunes it, 
takes that fruit so that you could produce more fruit. It's the same idea with this fire, this refiner's fire, right? Whatever you're struggling with, whatever you're going through, whatever the trial is, God actually wants you to seek Him more, right? He wants you to trust in Him more. He wants you to rely on His hope that He has set for you in heaven more. He wants to remove the impurities from your life that actually grieve His Spirit, that actually cause you to not fully worship Him, right? Elsewhere, we were talking about the purpose of these sufferings and these trials, one of them being so that we could glorify Christ more in heaven, have a greater capacity to glorify Christ in heaven. This is talking about now, right? That the genuineness of your faith now, being more precious than gold which perishes, might be tried by fire and tested by fire, right? God wants to bring us through suffering and through trials and through the grief so that we could worship Him more now, just as He wants us to worship Him more in heaven. The two are connected, right? The two are unified. If you worship God more now, then you're going to be able to worship God more in heaven. You understand? And one of the ways He produces that in us is through suffering and through trials, right? So, that is the refiner's trial, the refiner's fire. And it actually says, when it says here, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, is referring to us in heaven receiving praise from God for how we endured suffering and trial on this life. The Creator of the universe is actually going to praise you and give you a round of applause for how you lived in this life. That's amazing, right? That should fill us with hope and a desire to please Him and a desire to worship Him even if we're being persecuted, even if we're suffering with a disease, even if our family's falling apart, even if anything, right? No matter the trial, we should be filled with this hope because we know God's hand is in it. And if we endure it patiently and with a heart that's humble and that truly loves God and trusts in His promises, we will, at the revelation of Jesus Christ, receive praise from Him. Raise your hand if you want to receive praise from Jesus Christ when you get to heaven, right? Everybody's hand should go up. We, that's awesome. There's no other way to put it, right? It's like mind-blowing. We want to worship Him and praise Him, but when we get to heaven one day, He's actually going to praise us. And what are we going to do? Turn around and fall on our feet and worship Him for all eternity. It's amazing. So, it goes on to say, who, having not seen, you love. So Peter's actually referencing to what? He actually lived and walked with Jesus. And he saw Jesus ascend into heaven. And he saw the resurrected Jesus. And so for him, it was a little more easy, right? He actually saw all these tangible things, all the evidences of Jesus and the hope that he has in heaven because he was there with him. Peter's saying to the churches he's writing to, and to us, whom having not seen, you love. Right? That's a gift. God has given that to us, right? 
We don't need to tangibly see Jesus to love him. We know he has brought us from one place and begotten us again to this living hope. He has caused us to be born again. He has lifted the condemnation from our shoulders and now we could fully worship him. He has filled us with his spirit and we know this, right? We don't have to see him to love him, right? What did Jesus say to Thomas? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe, right? That's us. We're blessed. We're actually blessed because we haven't seen Jesus and yet believe. Why? Because when these sufferings and these trials come, that faith, that takes faith to believe and not see. That faith is going to carry us through because we have full reassurance of that salvation, of the hope, of our reservation in heaven. He says, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice. There's a, there's a Greek word for that. I can't say it. I'm not even going to try. Starts with an A. Jed could probably say it. I'm going to call him out. I'm coming up here. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but it's, it, it, it basically means you're filled with joy, right? You're not filling yourself with joy. When you trust in these promises, when you know that God has this reserved spot at His table, at His wedding feast in heaven for you, when you know you have been born again, when you know Jesus is alive, when you know that this hope is real, you are actually filled with this rejoicing. And then it just overflows in everything that we do. Even so much to where it says here, right? Everybody knows this verse. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Everybody knows that, right? Did you know it has to do with suffering? Did you know it has to do with persecution? Did you know it has to do with trials? When you faithfully trust in God and faithfully endure suffering and when you hear and it's also in first in first peter chapter 3 but even if you should suffer for righteousness for righteousness sake you are blessed it says right why who else suffered for righteousness sake uh jesus right he's our example if jesus suffered for righteousness sake so should we and why because even if you, when you're suffering for righteousness' sake, it says, do not be afraid of their th- threats nor troubled, which sounds a lot like what Paul said in Philippians, right? But sanctify your God, the Lord God in your hearts, right? Set them apart in your hearts is what that means. Set apart the hope that you have in Jesus in your hearts, right? And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks a reason for the hope that is in you. How could you be hopeful? You were in line for that promotion and you should have got it and the boss totally went with somebody else. Why are you so full of hope? Right? Because of what Christ has done in my life. Because I've been called to actually suffer for righteousness sake. It's actually a testimony to those around you is what that's talking about. It's an opportunity to share the gospel. It's an opportunity right, to stand on the pedestal of our life and Show, not with our mouths the gospel, but with our lives, that what Jesus did to me is real. That's why I'm not upset. That's why I'm not angry. That's why I'm not mad when I'm going through these things. That's why I'm not upset when the boss picks so-and-so over me. Because I know what Christ has done for me. And I know that all things that he's, he's working together for my good. Right? Everything. So, and, but it goes on to say, 
having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. It's of no benefit. Now we're, we're switching gears, right? Suffering for righteousness' sake, that's persecution, right? That's suffering. That's various trials. This is what all Peter's talking about. All different trials. One of those being persecution. Suffering for doing what is right. It's better, if it's God's will for us to suffer, to do good, right? Than to do evil. God's not honored in that suffering, in that trial, in that persecution, when we respond with evil. God's actually blasphemed. It does no good. When we endure it, right, and suffer having a good conscience, that's no, that means that we know that what we're doing before God is right, right? We're suffering, we're going through this trial, we're going through the persecution with a good conscience, right? Responding as Christ would respond. When we do that, those who defame you as evildoers and revile your good conduct in Christ may actually be ashamed, right? What does shame lead to sometimes as Christians? Repentance, right? And repentance leads to Christ. So that's what Peter's talking about here. When you're being persecuted wherever it is, for righteousness sake, if you endure it with a good conscience, it can actually cause somebody to be broken in their own hearts that they might be ready to receive God's grace through Christ. Go back to the beginning here. And then it says, with joy inexpressible and full of glory, right? God's glory actually rests on us and fills us when we go through suffering. In 1 Peter chapter 4, it says, verse 12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, right? That's the refining fire that he was talking about in verse in chapter 1. As though something strange is happening to you, right? If that's our thought, we're not we're not going to endure it. We're going to crush be crushed beneath the weight of the suffering, beneath the weight of the trial. But rejoice, same word in Greek, but I don't know how to say it. To the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering. Right? So we are to rejoice because we're partakers of Christ's suffering. That when His glory is revealed, you will also be glad with exceeding joy. Right? When we're in heaven, the, the, the Bible speaks of suffering loss for those of us who are in Christ. Right? Because our works are going to be tested by fire. Some of them are going to be come through the fire in eternity when we're before Christ as gold, which doesn't perish when it goes through fire. Some of our works are going to be burnt up like wooden hay and stubble, right? That's what he's talking about here. If we endure the suffering for Christ's glory, when we actually get to heaven one day, we're going to be filled with joy because we did so, because we glorified God, Christ on earth, and so we could glorify him in heaven. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That's weighty. 
That's encouraging. When we're persecuted for Christ, when we're suffering for Christ, when we're going through various trials for Christ, His Spirit actually rests upon you. Right? And then, it ha- it, it, it's amazing because it all lines up and it all connects because then, when His Spirit's resting on us, when we're enduring this suffering, then we're able to then we're able to endure it, right? Then we're able to sanctify God in our heart and able to give a defense to everyone who asks of this hope, right? In that hour, right, the Holy Spirit will give to you what you need to say. That's the idea. We're filled with God's Spirit when we suffer, when we're reviled, when we're reproached, when we go through persecution. We're actually, if we allow it to, if we allow Him to, in humility, filled with God's Spirit. And so we can endure the trials and the suffering and the pain and the persecution. So between verses 6 and 7, there was a brief trial, right? The trials are brief. They're purposeful trials, right? They're grievous trials. They're various trials. It's a refiner's trial, right? And it actually produces at the end honor and glory and praise that we receive through Jesus Christ. So I want to end with this. We're going to end with this. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19, after he goes through all of this talk about suffering, about persecution, suffering for righteousness' sake, he makes an application. Right? That's what we need to do with God's Word. We need to apply it to our lives. Right to be doers of it. We hear it and we listen, but we want to do it. We want to apply it. We want to walk in it because that's how God is glorified. It says, therefore. That therefore is a culmination of everything he was just talking about that had to do with suffering in the whole book. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God. Whose will is it that you're suffering? God's. Right? That's encouraging because He's our faithful Creator, as it says. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. Right? Trials, persecution, any form of suffering, they're not reasons. They're not, uh, they're not a reason to blaspheme God. They're not a reason to walk in depravity. They're not a reason to turn your back on God, right? It's not a license to say, oh, well, God put me through this trial, so now I'm going to go do what I like to do, what I want to do. God actually calls us, calls us here to do good when we're in the midst of suffering, right? Why? That's what Jesus did, right? And we want to be like Jesus. We want to be given that opportunity to be His witness, to testify of Him, to share His Gospel with others, to allow our lives to actually have an effect on others. And so, we who suffer need to commit our souls to Him in doing good, right? We're going to be faithful in doing good because of all of the promises we have, we're going to be faithful in serving Him and doing good in the midst of trials, in the midst of suffering, knowing that He has a purpose in it all. Right? Why? Because He's our faithful Creator. Right? God is faithful. 
He'll see you through it. Whatever the burden, whatever the task, whatever the situation, whatever the circumstance, whatever you're going through, God has a purpose. And He wants to build you up. He wants to edify you. He wants to, he wants to make you more perfect. Right? He wants to purify you as with gold. And that's what I realized going back on my suffering that I should have been doing. That I should have been rejoicing and allowing it to make me into this better picture of Christ. Right? That's what all, all our desires should be. So, I didn't know if I was going to share this, but I guess I'm going to. My father, when he was alive, had stage 4 prostate cancer. And he went to this church. And after he was done with all of his chemo, after the however many years it was he was battling with it, I think it was five or six, the doctor said, I could do nothing else for you. That's it. If I give you any more radiation, any more chemo, I'm actually going to be killing you. And I, ethically, I can't do that. So my father-in-law, who, thank God, is still around, according to his grace, called my dad and was like, Bobby! Bobby, what are you talking about? Listening to those doctors. I had stage four lung cancer. You need to go to my doctor. You need to go to Kumar. He totally will help you out. And my dad, with complete assurance of faith and salvation, knowing all of the promises that were reserved for him in heaven, he had faith, said to John, my father-in-law, don't worry about it. That's it. My course has been run. I know where I'm going. God wants me to go home to be with him now. And that's this. That's what we're talking about. Letting the suffering, letting the trial, letting the persecution actually shine Christ to others. And I remember my father-in-law tells me, he was like, what are you talking about? You've only been a Christian for five years. Quit acting like Paul. (laughs) Go see the doctor. And my dad was totally just calm and It's okay. I'm going to go be with Jesus now. I know my spot is reserved for him in heaven. And the fruit of that, the fruit of his patience, my dad's patience, and my dad's willingness to endure the suffering with godliness and with trust in Christ and his promises, here I am. My brother Justin got saved. My mom got saved. We committed ourselves to Christ because of that. And like God uses us to do that. And that's what he's talking about in Peter when he's talking about sanctifying him in our hearts. So that people look at us and see this hope and have no, why are you hopeful? Why? The building's crumbling down around you and yet you're standing in the midst of it hopeful. Right? And that's that's the application. To do good in the midst of suffering and trials and to be hopeful because God is faithful. All right, we're going to close in prayer. And then I have, there's a hymn we're going to sing, um, I Know Whom I Have Believed In. And we'll reflect on this service. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus. And we're thankful for your word, Lord God. And that in it you have revealed to us the hope of everlasting life through your Son, Jesus. And that in it you reveal to us a purpose. And that you are with us. And that even though we will have trouble in the world, you have overcome it, Lord. We have faith in you and all of your promises. And we pray, Lord God, that whatever trial, whatever situation, whatever suffering that each of us are going through, that you, by faith, 
would fill us with your joy, would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we would be able to rejoice simultaneously while grieving, Lord God, that it would be proof and evidence to those around us that you are real and that you are our Savior and that you are our living hope. We just thank you for this time. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.